I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Welcome to the Power 365 show. Full show notes for this episode can be found at nz365guy.com forward slash 320. Go there and get the notes. Before we chat with today's guest, here's a quick message from our sponsors. Well, I'm the sponsor for today. If you want to go to the next level in your career or business and need someone that has been there, done that, consider taking me on as your coach. Uh, You can express interest if this is something that you'd like to do at nz365guy.com forward slash coaching. And with that, let's get on with the show. Today's guest is from London, England. He works as a Dynamics 365 solution architect at Microsoft. He's a certified practitioner of human-centered design, so think Catalyst. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at OJ Ward. Ollie, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Mate, I did not know till I got into the research there about your HCD experience. <laughs> yeah, it's fairly uh, fairly new. I was I was lucky enough to get on a course for it um, about sort of eighteen months ago, so it's it's sort of pretty new to me. But did it with the the Luma guys, so uh, yeah, learned a lot around you know sort of problem definition and uh, human centered design as well. Um, and just before the pandemic hit, I was able to run my first uh, three workshops using using wow. some of those new skills. Right, um, but that was that was literally days before it all hit. So all the playback following that was uh, was done remotely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a great experience. What are the what are the kind of the tools that you like the most, and you know, like whether it be journey mapping or in, in your own words, what, what what do you what are the tools that you kind of you definitely would pull out in a workshop because you know it's effective in uh, getting good communication, you know, from from those involved. Yeah, sure. We did uh, one of the ones that I found that was particularly useful was. Um, Sort of after the problem definition, when we were thinking about ideation, that side of things, mm-hmm. um, doing a bit of a matrix around kind of complexity and value. Um, and that just kind of really helps focus individuals in kind of teams in terms of, you know, well, actually, if we solve this problem, that would that would give us a great return. And we could do that pretty quickly versus, OK, I mean, this might be, you know, something small, but actually to deliver that it's going to be quite complex. So it just helps focus people in kind of the areas which are, are going to deliver the most for them. Uh, so, nice. so yeah, definitely, definitely enjoy uh, that exercise. I think that's always worthwhile. With your Catalyst experience inside Microsoft, what what do you find the mapping between HCD, what you learned in your course, and you know what what Microsoft is really focusing on from a Catalyst perspective nowadays? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, to be honest, some of my my Catalyst experience is, is fairly limited around the HCD side of things. Um, I've only had the opportunity to run those sorts of uh, workshops a couple of times. Um, but yeah, I, I mean. 
I'd love to start to explore that more. And yeah, when I've got that experience, mate, I'll, I'll come back to you and let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Anyhow, tell me, tell me about what you do when you're not working um, and, and where you're based in the UK specifically, um, uh, you know, within London, that type of thing. And uh, yeah, what do you do for fun? Yeah, sure. So um, actually, well, I, I recently moved away from London. So I was, I was living oh, in London okay. for, for about eight or nine years um, and a about two years ago, moved uh, back up to Birmingham. So, um, for anyone wow. not familiar with the UK, that's it's kind of hundred miles north of London. Um, somewhat, that's a smaller move than I know the kind of twelve thousand miles you moved back, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we settled up here kind of last year, um, and we had a little girl arrive in the in the kind of nice. middle of all the chaos of the pandemic. So, uh, we're a happy but slightly tired family of three. <laughs> but she's been. Um, really positive focus kind of come into our lives right she's a lot of fun um so it's a lot of work awesome. but she's a lot of fun as well so uh, so how old is she uh she's nine months old now wow um yeah so she's uh sort of been standing recently crawling pulling like all it. the stuff off the shelves all that kind of good stuff i think awesome. i'm sure a lot of parents say that but you know for someone so small she's got she's got a really big personality so she, she's uh yeah she's good fun a lot of fun mine's six months old so uh oh, congratulations ahead of me <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure that's been a journey as well. Congratulations! Totally, thank you, thank you. Yeah, oh, so much fun, right? So much fun. I love it. I love it. Time to have another one, I think. All <laughs> <laughs> the women go, yeah, because you actually don't do much. To... <laughs> you don't do all the work. Yeah. So, so um, when you're in London, east, south, west. Uh, so when I was in London, I was uh, mostly kind of West London. So uh, nice. I was living around um, sort of Ealing Way for, for most of my time down there, mm-hmm. um, which I really enjoyed. It was, I mean, it's a lovely kind of lots of green space around there, but there's some uh, really great little sort of independent businesses and, and places to get out and eat. And you can get out, run along the Thames. That's probably the one thing I miss actually having moved up here is uh, not being able to just hit the towpath on the Thames and go and go and yeah. run down there every weekend. Yeah, so true. So true. So how did you end up inside Microsoft, inside technology? You know, what was your journey there? Yeah, sure. So um, it goes back quite a way, really. I think I did a, um, uh, a computer science degree at university, so um, technical degree. Um, and between my second and final years of that degree, uh, I did a year in industry, and I was actually lucky enough to kind of wrangle <laughs> wrangle a job at Microsoft for 12 months wow. as, as, a, as an intern. Um, and when I got offered that, I had the choice of, of two teams um i spoke to each of the managers and i chose what turned out to be the crm support team um so uh yeah paul the manager at the time you know really sold out to me i'd never heard of crm but he talked to me about the product kind of how it's used uh spoke to me about the kind of team and kind of what i could expect from the year so i, I kind of threw myself into that um i know people like to think about how long they've worked with the product so i guess that was kind of final days of version three and the early days of version wow. four yeah wow. uh, um what 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 was the most diverse use of it that you came across in that time there, like uh, of the platform not being used just for sales or customer service? Cool. Do you know that's so far away now? I can't I can't remember. I mean, I spoke to so many partners and customers during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can't remember. I remember there was um, there was a company that deals with rights management for music. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. and, and they were they were using that to kind of I think they were using it to manage um, manage kind of licenses that they've given out for, yep. for for music licenses. Wicked. So that was Wicked. quite interesting. Cool. Right? So, um, so what happened next? So uh, yeah, after that, obviously I, I went back to university and left. Uh, you know, completing my degree. Um, 
left at the kind of height of the financial crisis, which was a difficult time, right? And I kind of yeah. always felt like I wanted to go into a consultancy type role. Um, and I went for a, a role as a junior at a Microsoft partner. Mm-hmm. It was it was a great opportunity, right? It was um, kind of kind of mid sized partner. Gave me an opportunity to learn my craft as a consultant and, and started started my time on support, which I absolutely nailed because I'd had that year at Microsoft. Yeah. Um, but then started to get kind of fed, you know, bits of kind of configuration work and build work on on, on CRM and, and on the platform from from other consultants. And then over time, you know, started shadowing workshops and and, and design documents and, and design sessions. Just built up that experience, and then to the point where I was able to kind of run my own projects or run run my own workshops. First of all. I did that for kind of six or seven years up until the point that I I moved across to Microsoft um, when I was when I was working as solution architect at, at the partner. Just felt it was uh, time for something new and a bit different. I'd heard about uh, a role in the BizApps kind of technical pre-sales team in the UK. So a switch from from delivery to pre-sales really appealed to me. That just felt like a, a kind of kind of different uh, different skill set to learn, um, different um, kind of angle to go from from partner to vendor as well. Yeah, and uh, you know when I joined, it's, it's it can be quite overawing joining somewhere like that. Um, you suddenly realise <laughs> how great all your colleagues are, and um, you know I felt like I had a lot to learn from a pre-sales perspective. But some of my experience stood me in good stead. But um, you know, it, it had a manager that, that that really was was great in terms of kind of nurturing me and sort of really helping the team understand that you know pre-sales is a skill, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. it's not something mm-hmm. that, that that anyone can just do. Totally, totally. What when you say pre-sales as a skill, what what do you need to bring to bear? You know, I mean, just as some background of my entire career has been pre-sales, yeah. but in in yours, what what do you reckon were the the kind of key skills? Because uh, I often you know have this comment from consultants that they're like, I want to go into pre-sales. What do I need to know? What would your response to that be? Yeah, sure. I think. Um... I think you sometimes when you're when you're working projects, you you're quite kind of in the detail and you're thinking about delivering delivering the next thing uh, or the next uh, kind of sprint or whatever it might be that you're working towards. And I think uh, moving across to pre-sales, you kind of have to step back a little bit and think about almost uh, why does that project exist, right? So what is my uh, customer's strategy? What are their pains in this particular area? And then more importantly, what's what's the outcome that they're trying to achieve? So uh, what's the value that needs to be delivered back to them as an organization um, mm. by investing in, you know, whether it's Dynamics or, or some other technology? Um, and I think you, you kind of get this great mix of of the tech side, the kind of business and the value side, but also you get an opportunity to do some of that kind of creative element of of helping envision what that new working way of working might be or that new solution might be being those, you know, technologies that you've got a grounding in. So um, I think that's what appealed to me about it was that that good blend of, you know, kind of strategy, value, but also technology as well and a little bit of creativity in there too. Yeah, nice. So what's your current role involved? Yeah, so I mean that is kind of my current current role in a in a nutshell, right? I'm a I'm a technical specialist, which is kind of Microsoft speak for for technical pre-sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, you know, work with customers to understand their strategy, um, particular areas of their business potentially, what their pains might be, the outcomes they need to achieve, uh, help them envision that new way of working, um, primarily with Dynamics and the Power Platform. Um, though often we do come together with with colleagues from other parts of Microsoft and partners too, you know, Modern Workplace and Azure could get involved as well as that kind of holistic solution. Um, and the other element might be, you know, doing some kind of business value analysis as well. So helping that customer to kind of quantify 
the value of choosing that Microsoft solution. So what you know, what are they going to get delivered back? Um, and then hopefully off the back of that, you know, you get you get a nod and you get the commitment to to go ahead and work together, and then it goes over into uh, into delivery mode. Nice, nice. So you know, I first bumped into you in in Paddington uh, office, um, and you were delivering a session there on customer data platform. Uh, well, specifically Dynamics 365 Customer Insights, Microsoft's uh, CDP. Um, you know, that would have been, oh, man, maybe two years ago now. Yeah, what's, it's a little while uh, ago. Yeah, what's your journey been with um, Customer Insights? Yeah, sure. So I suppose um, it's a product I first encountered uh, when it was in preview. It was, it was actually, in its previous guise, it was, it was running as an Azure service. Yep. And it never quite made it into into general availability, right? And, and having had that background, spent years kind of running projects and doing that implementation, you know, data migration and integration were often some of the trickiest parts of, of a project. And I think what jumped out at me quite quickly was, you know, I got really excited about the ability to quite rapidly bring together siloed data from different platforms and different systems about someone's customers and create, you know, we always think about searching for a single customer view in, in those kind of dynamics, dynamics projects, but to truly create a single customer view that is much more than a visual, right? It's something that can be activated. Um, and, I, and I just out of interest, really, I kind of followed that that um, sort of preview product. I had a couple of customers that we were talking to about it, some that were trialing it out. Um, and I had the opportunity to work with some, some great people that were part of that product group, as well as some people in the UK. And when it was uh, relaunched in its current guise, as we know it now as, as Customer Insights, uh, we actually created the concept of, of Customer Insights in a Day, um, which is effectively kind of a, a set of training or an event that you can run. Uh, it's kind of a mix of, of, of positioning, uh, but also kind of hands-on labs and, and kind of demonstration capability as well. Um, so I kind of authored those labs along with some colleagues. And that content's just exploded, right? It's it's now used kind of globally at Microsoft to upskill technical folks, uh, as you well know. Um, it's it's used with partners as well uh, globally to kind of help onboard and upskill those. I know you had John Weesey on recently, who, yeah. who's actively managing and kind of maintaining that content now as part of the the broader kind of partner capability that he's doing. Um, so you know that's kind of where it started, and then I've gone on to be the kind of local expert, if you like. Uh, and I've, I've been lucky enough to kind of position and, and work with some customers in the UK who who have adopted or are actively looking at adopting uh, customer insights as their CDP. I like it. I like it. Let's just explain for a moment uh, for the listeners that might not know what what does CDP stand for, and also what is it at the end of the day. Yeah, sure. So a CDP is a customer data platform. Um, it's effectively uh, a type of software that's grown out of the marketing technology or martech space. Um, and there's a there's a kind of there's a definition from um, an organisation known as the CDP Institute. So it's not something that's exclusive to Microsoft. It is a, a recognised type of technology. And that definition is um, that it's a packaged software that creates a persistent, unified customer database that becomes accessible to other systems. Um, and that's, that might sound a little bit obtuse, but um, you know, uh, there's kind of four, potentially five characteristics that, that any CDP should have, right? So the first one is around data collection. So that is being a platform that allows you to bring together data from lots and lots of places um, that relates to your customer. So, you know, lots of organizations today are probably in a slightly envious space that 
Um, they've got more data about their customers than ever before, just, just by virtue of the fact that there's so many digital touch points and everything creates a signal. But that's fractured and broken up across in different kind of siloed systems from different vendors and political elements within an organization as well. So the first thing the CDP must do is help any organization bring all that together in a centralized place. And the second thing it needs to do is, is what's known as kind of profile unification or identity resolution. And that is, you know, looking at all the data you've got about all those different customer records and all those different interactions with those customers and create a single customer view. So where we've got Mark Smith from our marketing platform and our loyalty platform and point of sale, it's can we join that up to create that single record and bring all of that behavior, uh, behavioral and transactional data together with that as well. The third thing that a CDP needs to do is um, offer segmentation over the top of that. So particularly for marketing um, type functions, because uh, it's grown out of that MarTech space, marketers, once they've got that view of their customers, they want to be able to select audiences or subsets of those customers, groups of those customers. So they can then go on and do the fourth thing that a CDP must do, which is actually to activate or take action on those audiences. So typically for the CDP, that, that might be passing that segment or that audience out to some kind of system of engagement, like a marketing campaign tool or an advertising platform or something like that, where they will actually go and engage those customers within that segment and do something with it. Um, and then the, the kind of fifth optional um, capability that a CDP potentially can have is this idea around um, kind of prediction and decision. So the ability to bring um, out-of-the-box models or potentially custom models where you can apply things like advanced analytics or AI over the top so you can better understand those customers and potentially their behavior as well. So um, once you've got that rich set of customer data that you've probably never had together in one place before, can you use that to start getting predictive and understand how likely a customer is to potentially churn and leave you? Uh, or could you work out what products might be the most relevant that you could recommend to that potential customer? Or even just understand, you know, if you look at your customer set and you understand who your most loyal, most valuable customers are, what are the behaviors that that, that group of customers exhibit? You know, what is it they, they do in terms of engaging with you as an organization that means that they're sticky to you and they're loyal? And that can obviously inform your engagement strategies going forward as well. Yeah. So, okay, so that's interesting about, you know, pull, pulling that together, driving those insights and uh, adding the predictive. So I assume it's things like, you know, predictability around churn, propensity to buy something new and and any any other kind of things you're seeing around the predictive side of things yeah there's a couple of other things as well i mean um things like customer lifetime value is another one mm -hmm. so yep um often that's kind of measured or lifetime value is often measured retrospectively so how much <laughs> you know what's the value of this customer today if, if they're loyal um actually just by understanding the behaviors that they are exhibiting or your customers are how they're engaging with you even if they haven't necessarily bought anything from you at that point, you might start to be able to understand what their future lifetime value might be because their patterns of behavior might suggest that they're going to move into certain segments, you know, that, that highly loyal set of customers at the top, which you know are potentially your most valuable customers going forward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from earlier in my career, we, we've always talked about uh, CRM being the 360-degree view of the customer, but um, you're talking about customer insights being a 360 degree view or the, the unified profile um, of the customer. Mm -hmm. um, is CRM and CDP the same thing? Are they, or is there a difference? 
Yeah, there's definitely a difference. Um, I think, like a lot of technologies, CDP's got um, an overlap with with CRM, but it's also got an overlap with other things like master data management as well. But it, it does have really specific use cases and uses that differ from from those other types of technologies. So. Um, Often with CRM and CDP, it's more a case of that they can work in tandem. It's not a choice of one or the other. Um, and each, as I said before, has got its kind of own outcomes that, that effectively will will have some kind of impact on an organization's uh, bottom line, right? So um, like you, I've always, uh, in my days as a consultancy and delivering um, uh, CRM solutions, you know, we've always sought that single customer view. But I think what, what I've started to learn really is that um, the difference between CRM and CDP, I suppose, as a purpose, if you think about a CRM, you could almost, being oversimplistic, think about it as being a tool that helps you improve personal interactions with your customers, whereas a CDP is more about understanding your customers and their behaviors. Um, so if I expand on that a little bit, um, you've got, uh, actually, let's roll this back a little bit. If you think about it from a data collection perspective, um, both of them are solving different problems, but they're both using data that you have collected as a first party about your customers at their core, right? So for CRM, you're likely to capture data about the customer. It's also likely to be specific to a process, right? So you're going to be managing a customer-facing interaction, potentially selling or opportunity management or solving a problem for that customer through customer service. And that system helps you capture data that helps ensure a positive outcome in that particular process. But then that historical data can be available that helps you kind of manage the overall relationship. A CDP is more about consolidating and managing customer data across all touch points to gain that single customer view, right? So not just um, what are you doing from a sales and service and potentially marketing perspective, but also data that would never really end up in a CRM. So if you think about, uh, particularly if you've got connected services or connected products or um, a subscription service where you, you know how your customers are using your product or service, that data is really unlikely to ever to end up in CRM, right? Because there's just too much data. You can't get insight from it at that point. But getting that kind of transactional behavioral data together is actually still really valuable, right? So if you can bring that into the CDP, that gives you a much broader picture of things like, um, how did I acquire that customer? Uh, how are they interacting with my brand or my product or my service going forward? So, um, go on, so that totally, totally makes sense. You mentioned, though, uh, there's a crossover, like we talked, Sarah, what's the crossover between MDM? So MDM, I think um, people often get caught up in this as well. So with um, CDP and MDM, where they join up really is this idea about uh, bringing data together and identity resolution. So kind of this idea of creating kind of almost like a golden record. Now, what MDM does is, um, I mean, MDM can be used for for other purposes other than customer data. It can be used for kind of mastering products as well. Mm -hmm. um, for example, if you're a retailer, you might use it to create a master set of products. But MDM will then also do things like master that data and push you know, that golden record back out to each system that might be subscribing with it. Um, MDM will also pretty much only deal with who is the individual. So 
it'll only deal with the kind of demographic uh, name, address, uh, contact details type element of it. Whereas a CDP, uh, it'll allow you to bring that data together, do that identity resolution, but also bring with it uh, what we'd call kind of transactional behaviors. So emails, how are they interacting with your marketing, uh, what purchases have they made, potentially behavioral data as well. So uh, how are they using your mobile app? How are they using your website? If you've got uh, physical premises, you know, how often do they visit? What do they do when they're there? It'll bring all of that kind of data uh, together as well as part of that CDP element. And then secondly, it's not really about pushing data back out to lots and lots of line of business systems. It's more about allowing people within functions like marketing or product development um, or analysts to actually understand those customers and that behavior and then potentially take action through a system of engagement such as a marketing platform or uh, an advertising platform. So can the two uh, work in tandem? Yeah, absolutely. There's... there's um, Definite um, examples where MDM and CDP can coexist. So you can kind of do a level of identity resolution around kind of golden records, if you like, uh, but then pass those golden records to a CDP and have it augment with behavioral and transactional detail and, and allow then, you know, the other elements that CDP brings over MDM, such as those analytical models, the predictive models, and the segmentation and the action engines as well, which you absolutely just won't, won't get from an MDM. You know, MDM's unlikely to... To yeah. be able to affect your bottom line effectively in terms of you know winning customers or, or retaining customers, whereas a CDP is much much more set up for those sorts of outcomes. Mm-hmm. If if we look at uh, Dynamics three six five customer insights, which is Microsoft's customer data platform, um, when when we look at that, would when you look at the your experience thus far and working with partners and things like that, and even inside the customer account, who are the typical people that are hands-on inside Dynamics 365 Customer Insight? Because it's obviously not licensed per individual, it's it's, it's per record. And so, you know, uh, yeah, who are you typically seeing other people um, building out the measures, you know, understanding the segmentation, et cetera, building those segments out? maybe handing them off to marketing, that type of thing. What type of role definition do you see? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question, actually. And I think we get a really, really good mix of um, people from a, more of a data background. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, people that would be part of a, an in-house kind of data science or data analyst type function, working hand in hand with um, people from the business that would be responsible for outcomes like um, the acquisition of customers or the retention of customers or the engagement or the experience that they deliver to customers. So you get this uh, really interesting kind of mix of skills where you've got data and, and analysts on one hand, and then you've got kind of marketers on the other side, or potentially you know heads of customer experience and things like that as well, coming together to kind of uh, kind of make this a reality, if you like. Um, we see it from the partner side as well, actually. Um, you know, whereas most of my interactions previously have been with kind of traditional biz apps or, or, or Dynamics partners. What we're seeing now is a lot of the partners that are really running really hard with this are. I've got skill sets in both camps from a from an Azure data and AI uh, perspective, but also um, from in a business applications perspective. Um, and interestingly, we've also seen a third type of um, kind of partner emerge uh, that's looking at this solution, which is um, a lot of um, kind of uh, technology arms within advertising agencies are starting to look at this. So traditionally, they would have been delivering. You know, they've got the understanding of kind of marketing and outcomes and, and, and customer data. 
Uh, they've got the experience of, of data platforms as well from um, doing this on behalf of customers um, historically. Uh, and now they're able to kind of deliver CDPs into um, the customers themselves and help them kind of own their own customer data going forward as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting from both a customer perspective, that kind of mix of roles, but also the kind of skill sets that we're, we're seeing from partners as well. Yeah, yeah. In- interesting. Um one of the, one of the things that we hear is that you don't necessarily have to have uh, actually uh, in relationship to the you know we talked about partner then we talked about Microsoft what about in the customer account you talked about um, groups that you know sit in that analytics AI uh, skill set area are you getting uh, you know when I look at the SaaS product that is Dynamics three six five it's really designed that. Uh, anybody can come. In other words, it's low code in its nature, yeah. but then, of course, can be extended massively with uh, Azure Synapse, for example. Yeah. Um, are you seeing more lay people engaging with it? Um, uh, what's what's the kind of expertise level do they need to be at before they really can start driving value from from uh, um, customer insights? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, we are seeing uh, that customer insights has definitely got a kind of a, a lower barrier to entry, if you like, um, compared to kind of other CDPs that are available. And we are seeing um, people with kind of more low-code skill sets being able to pick this up. Um, you know, if anyone out there listening has, has worked with anything like Power BI in the past or um, kind of Power Platform connectors and, and data flows, They'll be familiar with how you can quite quickly um, connect. You know, that's the the same technology that Customer Insights uses to be able to connect and ingest data into the platform. So they'll be familiar with making those connections, creating those selections, and bringing the data in. Uh, and much of the rest of it is is you know we're delivering this as that kind of finished SaaS application. So it's very much GUI driven um, rather than kind of getting into uh, kind of code and, and heavy query languages and things like that. So you'll be quite quickly be able to do that unification process through a set of configurable rules that you can always edit, rechange um, if you like. And the same for the measures as well. It's 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 almost like building a, a kind of segment in a in a marketing platform mm-hmm. um, if you're doing those sorts of experiences. Uh, which isn't necessarily the case with a, with a num- number of other CDPs that are available. Yeah. So, so talking about those other CDPs and stuff out there, what I my observation is a lot of them. Um, uh, I, I use the term a black box by nature, right? They're kind of something. You, the data gets fed into it. Something happens in there. It's behind the curtain, so to speak. We don't know what it is, and here is an output. And you know, um, it's almost like more of a managed service where they're using some tool set and say, "Hey, here's our CDB platform." Where you know, with 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 customer insights, you have full transparency, full access. It's your data. Yeah, it sits in Azure Data Lake. You can bring your own data. Like you've, it, we're not, we're not doing something behind the scenes from a Microsoft perspective that has then been offered back to the customer, right? You have that full visibility. Are there any kind of other, you know? Actually, I'll add a couple more. You know, the fact that it's built on Azure and all the certifications, the trust factor, the geo redundancy, etc., that we have with our platform um, makes us quite unique. When you look at the competitor products out there. Wh- is there anything else besides what I just covered there that really stands out to you as what's our unique selling point? Why do, wh- how are we differentiated in this area? 
Yeah, sure. So I think loosely in terms of compete, you can probably group uh, most organizations that are in or claim to have a CDP into kind of two groups. One would be kind of niche players, you know, people that really are kind of CDP organizations, uh, people like Segment or Lytics, mm-hmm. for example, quite well-established CDP vendors. Um, some of those will have marketing automation capabilities kind of baked in as well, sort of like Blueven and people like that. Um, those CDPs tend not, you know, not necessarily all the ones I've named, but they tend to be heavily skewed towards marketing-only use cases. They're really about that that marketing automation capability. Secondly, they tend to be built um, on kind of two, three, maybe four different technology sets, often from different vendors. So you might have uh, a data store from, um, uh, I don't know, one vendor. Then you might have an integration technology to bring the data in from somewhere else. Uh, then you might have a visualization technology on top of that to help you do the visualizations. Um, so you're kind of buying into, already buying into kind of three or four different vendors to do that. The other side of it is is exactly what you, you've kind of mentioned there, right, which is some are kind of black box kind of services engagements, which means that, you know, your data as an organization, particularly about your customers and how they engage with you and use your products is it's potentially hugely valuable to you and others. And what you're doing is you're allowing another party that potentially doesn't understand it quite as well as you to kind of do that work for you and hand you back the result, which you kind of have to take for granted. Um, whereas CI will obviously, as you said before, it's kind of all on Azure. Um, it's all part of your own uh, kind of enterprise data infrastructure. So you've got that control, you've got that governance, you've got that visibility, but you've also got that tool set now, which is much lower barrier to entry and a much quicker time to value, which means you can actually take ownership of how you create that single customer view, what data is used and what value you can drive from it as well. Um, the other side of the compete piece, I suppose, is 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 the kind of, uh, rather than the niche players, is more of the suite players, which um, Microsoft kind of fall into. Uh, but you've also got um, Adobe, for example. Um, I've got their own CDP um, on their, their experience platform. Um, again, heavily skewed towards marketing use cases, um, which you would, expe- you would expect, right? Because they, they kind of own that, that digital experience with their, all their uh, other capabilities in, in their cloud already. Um, Salesforce um, are out there in the market. They've been talking about customer 360 for a long time. Um, theirs uh, does exist, but really, um, going a bit deep into compete here, but um, from a Salesforce perspective, you know their, their broader Salesforce cloud has grown through a lot of acquisitions of different products. So, for example, their sales and customer service and e-commerce platforms are actually kind of different products and therefore sat on different clouds. Whereas if you look at the Dynamics suite, it's all kind of based on top of that dataverse. You've already got that single platform. So the Salesforce customer 360 piece really um, immediately is about helping them stitch together that customer view from across all those different platforms. It's really only focused on Salesforce data today, um, not so much third-party data or other sets of data that you might have around the organization. Um, and I think uh, SAP have recently moved into the space as well, but they're, they're I'm sort of less familiar with their offering. But I suppose uh, from a customer insights and unique perspective, um, we're the only one that is built from the ground up on Azure. So we're not based on multiple technologies. Uh, so you've got that governance, that scale, that control, particularly if you're if you're the CDO of an organization, you want to know where your customer data sits, right? That's your head on the chopping yeah. block. Uh, you've got the time to value because it's that finished SaaS application. So very quickly, you can get up and running with all those Power, uh, Power Query connectors that are built in, bring that data in. 
use those configurable rules to create that single customer view and those out-of-the-box models to even start to get some of those advanced analytics segmentation out of it. And then, you know, if you are a Microsoft customer and you are using that broader data platform, if you like, um, you're not creating another silo of data somewhere in your organization, right? This CDP, Customer Insights, comes together on top of the Azure Data Lake. So if you are running uh, kind of advanced Azure analytics workloads, you know that your customer data is therefore being stored in the same data lake that your broader set of um, Azure Enterprise data is, is being stored in as well. And therefore, your data analysts and your data scientists can, can access that in the same way they normally would with the same set of tools that they use day-to-day to, to kind of solve some of the, the tricky data problems around the organization. Yeah. Are you coming across scenarios where customers have data locked up in legacy applications, might not have APIs on premise, that type of thing? How do you, how can you handle those type of scenarios? And I've come across this recently, actually, uh, with a customer, and it, it's a little bit tricky, right? So, um, if there are APIs, you know, customer insights is able to connect to anything where you've got a kind of a branded connector, if you like, whether it's online or on premise using uh, the data gateways. Also got generic connectors for things like uh, you know different standards of web service or ODBC connectors and things like that. So pretty you know well covered from a connector perspective. Um, I've got I've got a customer in a minute who has got data locked up in a. Uh, a platform that's effectively a managed service um, and they don't have access to the APIs. So in that world, it's it's more of them being able to orchestrate kind of an extract and dropping it somewhere that CI can then pick that up and ingest as part of one of the, the many sources that it's going to pull into the platform. Mm-hmm. So it could pick up a file like, a let's say, a CSV dump from a system saved somewhere, maybe yeah. secure FTP, something like that, and pick up that file at a scheduled interval and uh, and refresh its, uh, the data set. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that extract could be something as basic as or as simple as a CSV file, as you said, that's been dropped onto, you know, an SFTP site or somewhere secure in Azure, um, an Azure blob storage or something like that. And CI can just, just pick that up as one of the sources that it might be pulling in uh, for as part of that ingestion. Nice. We, we hear more and more of Azure Synapse Analytics coming into play in customer insights uh, deals. Can you explain, first of all, what uh, Azure Synapse is and then how it plays with customer insights? Yeah, cool. So Synapse um, is really about uh it was was, well effectively it was announced kind of late 2019 i believe um and really it's amongst other things it's kind of the idea of a single place for an organization's data analysts and data scientists to work right so within synapse you've got access to your relational data that might be in sql type stores you've got access to non-relational or unstructured or semi-structured data that might be in like an azure data lake or something like that so you've got both kind of sql and spark capabilities within there as well and then on top of that you've got embedded experience for things like authoring power bi you know organizational dashboards embedded experiences for you know building and authoring your own kind of predictive or ai models over the top of it and then you've got um starting to see more and more come through in terms of kind of industry tools around industry data models uh allowing you to to kind of focus you know specific data modeling challenges based on the industry that you that you uh operate in and i think where this comes together with customer insights or or even that kind of azure data platform or generally is that as i said before all the data that goes into ci 
and all the data that comes out of CI in terms of that single unified profile, all those measures, all those segments, all of that is stored within that Azure data lake. So that could be shared between both CI and Synapse. It's all stored in CDN format as well. And that means that um, two things, really, you know, you've got that ownership and that control of your data. You've got the scale of Azure, but it opens up a number of other use cases where, as an organization, you might want to use customer data alongside other data from around the organization to achieve some kind of outcome. Um, and actually, I was kicking this around with, with a colleague of mine not too long ago uh, who works in Azure, Azure Data and AI, and he was sort of suggesting that one classic one that you might come across in, for example, retail or uh, some other organizations is, is this idea of price optimization, um, where, you know, <laughs> effectively, if you're launching a product or a service, you can you can price it in a number of different ways. So uh, you could do cost plus. So, you know, how much does it take cost you to produce the widget or run the service per customer? And then you whack a bit of margin on top of it. Uh, you could do a competitive look. So look at what other offerings are already available in the market, how much do they cost, and then try and fit in around that. Or you can do um, what's kind of basically value pricing, right? And this is where pricing optimization comes in. And this is effectively working out what your customers are willing to pay for the service. So what is your product or your service worth to the customer? How much are they willing to pay to have that, that capability or that widget? Um, and the idea is that, you know, if you're doing it on cost plus, cost plus or competitive, you're potentially leaving, uh, you know, money on the table because you're, you're thinking about cost and not the value to your end consumer, right? But to do that kind of pricing optimization, you need lots and lots of data. You need data on your customers. You need data about the demographics that use your product or buy your product or your service. Uh, detail about you know transactional nature of that potentially qualitative stuff around reviews uh, churn information what's the market demand uh, but you might also need you know product usage and kind of telemetry and that side of things as well uh, as patterns to be able to kind of model that it's quite uh, kind of, I think it's quite a complex um, sort of algorithm there's, there's products out there that just just do pricing optimization totally. but in terms of the data uh, you know bringing that together to actually get that outcome you need both that customer data and you've got that from your CDP and potentially broader data from across the organization as well. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure the airline industry, right, are using these type of tooling. Yeah, you um, think so, right? Yeah. When, when they set, set fears. What's been the impact of COVID um, on CDPs? And, 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 you know, like what have you seen, and particularly across the UK, maybe a bit into Europe in the last year with the impact of COVID? Has there been an increased demand from customers to understand their customers better? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I don't uh, I don't have the numbers to kind of back this up, but certainly kind of anecdotally what I've seen is, um, you know, uh, in the UK, we've been in and out of lockdown kind of two or three times. And I think um, a lot of businesses have, have had to close physical premises. Um, but ultimately, what it's emphasized kind of across industries really is, is the importance on retaining customers and the role that the experience you deliver to customers plays in, in, in that. Um, as I said, you know, lots of businesses have been closed or unavailable. So people have found kind of alternative sources for the brands and the products and the things that they might use. Um, and there's a big question mark there for some organizations, which is, are those customers going to come back to me? Do they do they still have an affinity or a loyalty to me because I've been unavailable or not been able to deliver in, in, in this area? And I think it's just the, the pandemic's kind of really highlighted that customer experience is key. That is your differentiator, right? Above price and product, uh, that is the key thing that we're hearing, right? And, and the idea that 
customers are going to remember how they were treated or during this period as well is going to stick with them as quite an emotive thing thing to that as well um i think a couple of things that have jumped out really in retail um a lot of the a lot of the businesses kind of closed down and there's obviously been a number of casualties in the kind of uk high street as well businesses that just just won't be there now things are, are reopening unfortunately but um some retailers were were classed as essential and allowed to to remain open particularly kind of diy stores and diy retailers in the hit you know in the uk had a huge boom they've seen so you know huge jumps in profitability over the, over the past wow. year um but they had to pivot really quickly to this kind of essential click and collect um type model and that actually gave them a really good opportunity to to capture more customer data and, and learn about the customers and what projects they're on and things like that and i think that started to highlight to them the importance of understanding more about their end consumers i think also uh, another example i've seen is is uh, um uh, some of the big CPG organizations. So, you know, these are companies that, that make vast different sets of products but sell them through retailers, right? Um, which means that they they rarely know their end consumer. Um, and if you look around online, you'll kind of see lots and lots of kind of sort of think piece articles about CPGs and that kind of conflict, which is a lot of them might be looking out there to try and create a kind of a direct consumer channel so they can they can learn who their own customers are. But a lot of these articles will also be saying that some of these CPGs can't really make that work. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. I think some products you probably can. You know, um, there's some brands and some types of product that people really build affinity towards. <laughs> if you think about things like alcoholic spirits, for example, um, you know, some people will really identify with certain types of gin or certain types of whiskey and that'll be their kind of go-to go-to drink right um and i think some of the cpgs out there have created these kind of discrete direct-to-consumer models where they're able to you know own the experience from end to end um with the customer um and try and you know learn about their customers as well during the pandemic there's been a bit of a boom around kind of premium spirits during during the pandemic but people (laughs) buying those sorts of things online that means Mm. that you know, you start to understand actually the people that are buying my my drinks, for example, do they does that match up to my marketing personas of the people that I've been trying to target previously? Am I suddenly seeing a new trend from a new demographic for one of my existing spirits or one of my existing products? And how do I how do I you know capitalize on that? How do I make sure I'm targeting the right set of people? And that's something that a CDP can really help with in terms of you know spotting those emerging trends and those emerging demographics. So for the, some of those organizations, CPG, for example, it's it's created kind of a another way to get to know their customers um kind of taking out the middleman as well yeah final uh, question yeah. i have um because i see we're quickly running out of time is oh, really sorry is no that this is going to be sorry this is great is is in your mind what are kind of without mentioning the company names because they might not have been case studied etc by microsoft yet but what are the maybe the industries that you're really seeing adopt this technology now and and mm-hmm. and um yeah that that have even before covid maybe really started to embrace customer data platform dynamics 365 customer insights what are the kind of hero stories that stand out in your mind yeah sure so i think um uh, it's not hard and fast for all but i think any organization that is is really customer centric and thinking about experience um as the kind of key way for them to differentiate they are the companies that are investing in a cdp right they want to get to know their customers they want to see 
changing trends in their customer behavior, uh, you know, potential for new opportunities for new products or services or new demographics that are emerging. Um, and I think in that, from a, from a hero industries perspective, I suppose you're talking about any industry really that is primarily B2C, primarily sort of medium to high touch, you know, kind of high intimacy with their customers. Um, although there, I think there are some exceptions to that. And I think typically that falls into things like service organizations, um, sort of uh, gyms and health clubs is one that I've, I've, I've worked on with a couple of customers. Uh, retailers, uh, particularly uh, retailers and restaurants, um, obviously looking to get to know their customers. Um, and one that kind of sits outside that as well is, is perhaps in insurance, which uh, mm. is quite interesting because if you think about insurance, it's quite a low frequency of touch point with your customer. Mm-hmm. Right? You might buy it and then come back 12 months later and, and maybe you'll renew or maybe you'll go somewhere else. Um, if you haven't had to use it in that time period of time. But I think um, there's some appetite there with insurers because they're starting to see or understand that um, as an industry, historically, they've been very product-centric rather than customer-centric mm-hmm. or experience-centric. Mm-hmm. You know, They might sell home insurance, car insurance, travel insurance, but each of those will be its own product line with its own admin systems. And, you know, if you've got more than one policy from an insurer, you're probably in, in at least 100%. two systems, right? Plus mm-hmm, then you've got mm-hmm. claims and quotes and everything else over the top of it. So I think some of them are starting to see the value of actually they're much more sticky with their customers. If, if they know who their customers are um, and they can offer things like multi-policy and multi-cover and, and actually you know, CDP is one way that they can start to quickly identify who those customers are. But they can also then potentially identify things like um, white space in terms of demographics or products that they might have. And that might help them either think about do they go to market with an existing product and target to a new demo, new demographic, or do they launch a new product that fits fulfills some sort of need that they've not previously been covering? So they're seeing it as a, an opportunity for growth from from those ways as well. Yeah. Um, I think gyms and health clubs is is one I've been particularly uh, involved in. I've got two customers looking at this from from two slightly different angles and. Um, one of them we started pre-COVID quite a while ago, um, and that one's actually really fascinating. What what they were able to do was, for the first time ever, look at their kind of membership base, if you like, bring all their members in, but then bring together you know data about actually, well, how often how often did Mark Smith come into the gym? How often did he tap in? Or what classes did he book? And did he actually attend those classes? And then also things like uh, what they call ancillary spend. So. Are you buying things whilst you're in the health club? Are you, uh, you know, buying food, coffee, supplements, equipment? Are you paying for personal training? And they were able to do a, a whole load of kind of analytics over the top of that, which them to understand a number of things. Obviously, churn being one, being a subscription-based organization. Uh, but the other one was was to use some some advanced analytics over, you know, to create some segments effectively. So mm-hmm. they were able to create. Uh, drop all of their members into four segments. The top segment being their, you know, kind of champion customers. Next segment being potential champions and then, you know, getting lesser and lesser engaged as they go down. And they were able to understand that, you know, those in that top bracket were, um, I think it was uh, two to three times more likely, uh, sorry, two to, had a membership that was two to three times uh, the length of those in the bottom bracket. <laughs> wow, and wow. they were kind of uh, two and a bit times more valuable as well in terms of lifetime value. But then they could understand the behaviors that they exhibit. So those in that top bracket, you know, how many times are we 
week do they visit a gym? Uh, how many classes do they go to a week? How much do they spend on, on PT? And if you can understand those sorts of behaviours, you can then start to inform your engagement strategy for, for perhaps your potential champions. So you say, ah, right, my potential champions are they're nearly champions, but this guy is only going to one class a week rather than, than two that might help him build affinity. So maybe they'll build a, a class recommendation capability over the top of that and use that you know, through marketing, potentially face-to-face when he comes into the gym and talk to him, uh, mm-hmm. or through you know, digital communications across you know, your, your app when you go online to check in or to, to, to book a class and start promoting different classes to him to see if they can engage him to, to doing more. Um, and obviously, with COVID hitting, they've had to pivot to much more digital or kind of an online type experience as well with their customers. So they've been yeah. trying to learn learn from that perspective. Um, my other customer in that space as well, they are just at the start of their CI journey, really, but they're looking at it from a perspective of um, they run uh, sort of local leisure centres for kind of local government uh, across the UK, and um, they're looking at it from a well. What are, what are the what's the returning behaviour um, of their members in coming back to mm-hmm. their leisure centres? Of you course, know? yeah. Um, How is it different from from um, the behaviours and the usage that they were seeing pre-COVID? Uh, and they're hoping to use that to basically inform you know what uh, you know what classes and what offerings that they focus on. But also they've got a big focus on widening participation, right? Because these are kind of community centres, so. For them, they want to understand, um, you know, are they serving all the demographics that they need to serve um, as well as they can do? Uh, do they need to focus on, um, you know, uh, trying to bring certain demographics or certain services back in to, to start to build that affinity and that usage back mm-hmm. up as well? So good. So good. We've uh, we've run out of time for 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 uh, anything more at this point, but um, <laughs> be, it's it's such a great topic to cover and learned so much from you, uh, Ollie. Who do you recommend as a guest from Microsoft? Maybe come on a future episode, either talking about the Power Platform or any really the Dynam- Dynamics products. Yeah, cool. Uh, I could definitely recommend a couple of people. So. Um, uh, I would say uh, Matt Woodford it might be quite an interesting uh, uh, conversation. So Matt was previously, um, he's hold, held all sorts of jobs across Microsoft and, and an analysts previously, but he um, he was the product marketing manager for business applications in the UK, and he's now running that, that job for Western Europe. I think he'd be a really interesting person to speak to. Um, Another individual, perhaps uh, either Haley Bass or, or Roger Gilchrist, if you've not had either, either of them on before. Uh, those guys are uh, they, they work uh, as research and development uh, with customers, kind of in the field, but they f- feedback as part of their role in, in product group as well, and they're tied to Fast Track. Um, so they might be really interesting in terms of kind of like future, future direction of the platform, but also Haley's got a particular specialism around sales and sales uh, sales AI capabilities as well. Um, and if I could, if I'm allowed to, I know we're over time, if I can offer a third person, I'd uh, yeah. perhaps suggest uh, Mark Magolis might be a really interesting individual. He's, he's, had a, he's a really charismatic guy. Um, he's, he's had a really interesting career as well from uh, he has. kind of uh, having a business acquired, a, a product acquired earlier on in his career, but also you know, from a pre-sales perspective um, as a technical leader as well at Microsoft. Um, and I know he's done some great stuff around the use of, of technology in terms of uh, disasters as well, and, and as was invited to speak at the, the White House some years ago as well. So I think any of those guys would be, uh, yeah, fantastic guests. 
Yep, I know Mark, he's been in the ecosystem a very long time and Roger Gilchrist as well, his name, you know, definitely uh, heard a lot. So, hey, thanks for that. Now, I always like to wrap up with some quick fire questions. Are you ready for your randoms? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, what's the most surprising self-realization you've ever had? The most surprising self-realization I've ever had. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, oh, oh, uh, <laughs> I don't know, mate. You, you've really caught me on the hot with that one. Go on. <laughs> okay, that's all right. Um, what have you bought that you love so much you'd buy it again? Uh, do you know what? I get nerdy about lots and lots of things, but um, during the last lockdown, I bought myself um, a really nice coffee machine, having missed nice, nice coffee. Nice. So uh, yeah. I'm getting pretty nerdy about um, yeah how I grind my beans and uh, <laughs> things like that. So I'd I definitely buy myself a, a coffee machine again if that if that one ever went pop. Nice. What famous person have you met? Famous person. Which? Have I met? Mm. Uh, I've met. Uh, I don't know. How, it depends how famous they are. Do you know what? I saw. Um, Johnny Depp on a tube platform once. So oh, yeah. someone, someone asked me, someone passed me uh, their phone and asked me to take a photo of them with someone. And I just assumed they were a couple. And I, I started looking in the in the camera on the phone, realized yeah. that it was this uh, <laughs> handsome, wiry guy with a big hat. And I was like, oh, is that, that's Johnny Depp. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's probably the most famous person I've met, I would say. Isn't nuts? Like I was living in West Hampstead while I was there and there were at least three, four, five different locals, which are all movie stars um, in the area. And so you just bump into them, you know. Um, I was in the bookstore one day, opened the the guy opened the door for me, and as I'm going past, I'm like, whoa. He was one of the guys that Professor McGonagall out of Harry Potter and stuff. And, um, yeah, just crazy. Um, if you could only have five apps on your phone, what would they be? Five apps on my phone. Yep. Um, uh, definitely my emails, uh, sadly, mm-hmm. it's a little, a little bit life admin, uh, Spotify. I couldn't live without that. That is like music's a, a big thing. I spend a lot of time doing, um, what else? Uh, Twitter's a little bit of a time hole for me. I think um, mm-hmm. on the odd occasion where I get, get a bit of time, I do throw a bit of time into Twitter. Um, probably the guardian news app is the other one. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I'd struggle to come up with a fifth, but I think I'll go with those, those four for now. Nice. That'd get me quite far. When you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> um, I don't know. When I was really young, I would have probably said something ridiculous, like uh, like an astronaut. But um, nice. Uh, no, I, I always was quite interested in kind of technology and building things as well. So I think I think I've done all right. I think I've kind of gone down the right path. <laughs> Would those around you say you're slightly late to meetings or super early? Oh yeah, I'm late. I'm late for everything, even virtual <laughs> meetings. I am late. I'm notorious for it. It's a really bad habit, and it's not something I'm proud of. It's definitely something that I, sh- I should have already worked on in my in my 34 years of life. But there we go. Uh, it hasn't held you back. <laughs> hey Ollie, thanks for coming on the show. Cool, no problem, Mark. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Business Applications MVP, Mark Smith, also known as the NZ365 guy. If there's a specific Microsoft guest you'd like to see on the show, maybe they, you've heard they've got a good story, uh, it would be a value to the audience, please let me know. Message me on LinkedIn. That would be great. Uh, please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player if you want to hear more like this. And uh, if you'd like to leave a review, go to nz365guy.com forward slash review. Otherwise, stay safe and see you next time.